Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we continue to navigate the reality of ongoing confinement. True to its name, the Emory Global Health Institute plays a vital role on the world stage in developing and nurturing partnerships for research and scholarship. As part of its efforts to address the COVID-19 pandemic, and in keeping with its 13-year history of bringing diverse disciplines together to tackle global health issues, The Emory Global Health Institute launched a COVID-19 children's e-book competition just last month. The winning author and illustrator Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee join us now via Zoom, along with Pamela Redman, the Global Health Institute's chief operating officer. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Now, Pam, what was the inspiration for creating the ebook competition? As you know, the Emory Global Health Institute's mission is to advance the knowledge of global health issues. And there really is no greater global health issue facing the world today than COVID-19 pandemic. We recognize that children must be finding this pandemic scary and confusing. And the director of our um, institute, Dr. Jeffrey Copeland, has three young grandchildren. So he was experiencing firsthand all the questions, the confusion, and you know what's really going on in the world. Discussing it in a staff meeting one day, we decided a book would be a great way to to help children better understand what's happening and how they can play a role in the pandemic. So Dr. Copeland actually continued his role as researcher and grandfather in incorporating his grandchildren into this process of the ebook competition. What were some of the guidelines creators had to follow? To start with, we announced the book 
as a competition rather than to seek out a children's book author. So the competition was open to the general public. Anyone could submit a book. We announced the competition and the authors only had two short weeks to submit a book. We realized what a huge challenge that might be for the authors and illustrators. And to be honest, Lois, we weren't sure if we would end up with five books or a hundred books when we released the competition news. The book was to be written for six to nine-year-old children. We welcomed picture books, we welcomed easy readers, and we welcomed age-appropriate chapter books to the competition. And in fact, how many submissions were there? We were shocked and, and incredibly pleased to receive 256 children's book submissions. And the authors were from all walks of life. We had professional writers, we had teachers, healthcare providers, psychologists, parents, and students to submit books to our competition. Who were the judges? We knew from the get-go that we were, were not the best judges for this book. We're, we're public health professionals, um, healthcare providers at the Emory Global Health Institute. And we knew that we needed to find judges that were better qualified than us to also help us. So we engaged 60 judges. Uh, these included physicians and pediatricians specifically, nurses, teachers, child psychologists, public health professionals, parents, and sometimes the judges' children um, even weighed in on their favorite books. Oh, that is important to include, to have a child's perspective. Carrie and Beth, how did you decide to write this children's book together? I guess I'll start. This is Beth. I found out about the contest uh, from a friend who lives in Atlanta, and I just saw it. And at the time, I was really feeling like there are so many people on the front lines doing things to help, and I wanted to do something to help. So I was like, well, I'm a writer. You know, maybe this is a way I can help. I can I can simplify the issues and and also sort of speak with a hopeful voice. So I just did a short amount of research and wrote up the draft, which is very, very similar to the final draft, just in one afternoon. And then I kind of sat on it for a couple of days and called Carrie, who is my friend and a great illustrator. I just thought her style would be perfect for it. And I told her about the contest. And Carrie, you want to take over on your perspective? Yeah, um, she called sort of out of the blue. We talk quite a lot about different projects and I've always loved her books and her, her voice. And so she asked me about it and I actually was in the middle of moving. So I sort of blew her off at first. I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds great. I'll get back to you. And she was persistent as she is in uh I ended up reading the manuscript. I was sitting in my car, had just taken my mask off, had just gotten back from the grocery store, feeling sort of overwhelmed and overcome with the situation. And, um, and I read the manuscript and I just it was so simple and so poignant and beautiful. And I just thought, okay, I have to try this. So we just uh, sort of decided not necessarily how this wouldn't work, but how it could work. And Beth was kind of my cheerleader through the whole thing. We just decided the process would be 
to do the quick sketches and get the ideas down and not worry so much about the process. I would imagine you take much longer. Yeah, it can take me up to about six months, honestly. But the beauty of this book, the simplicity of her words, it just spilled out of me. And with her encouragement, you know, well, the, the sketches are great. Let's just use the sketches. So it just kind of fell together. I also did two rounds of sketches. I do what's like a little thumbnail book dummy. And we worked through some of the problems, but we had it pretty quick. And um, then I just went right to color digitally, which is also a big help. And I normally do traditional watercolor. So it was just a wonderful culmination of our talents, I think. And it was just a joy to work with Beth on this book. And I don't know if I would have been able to make the deadline without her encouragement. Well, it's beautiful to read as well as to behold the, yes. the illustrations. And what struck me in reading it was how you point out to the children, how you impress upon your readers the important role they have in fighting the disease, that staying home, that their being at home is playing a very important role. And what a perspective that gives a child who may just feel bored and wonder, when will life return to what I knew it, that here you elevate their purpose just by being inside and being safe. Uh, the, the picture with the child holding the shield like a warrior against all of the COVID droplets surrounding her. I love how you describe that. that. That's a real compliment. Thank you. Would one of you read something uh, from the book? Oh, yeah. Here it is. COVID-19 Helpers by Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee. In the spring of 2020, something very unusual happened. Children around the world stopped going to school. They stopped playing in the parks. They stopped going to sports games and movie theaters and birthday parties. In the spring of 2020, it seemed like kids everywhere were doing nothing, but they weren't doing nothing. They were doing something very important. They were helping fight a brand new disease. COVID-19 appeared for the first time just a few months before. Many people were not harmed by the virus, but it made some people very sick. And because it was new, doctors did not have a cure. So people everywhere began to help. Healthcare workers helped sick people recover. Researchers helped to discover new medicines. Leaders helped by making new plans. Reporters helped share the news. Farmers and grocers helped by making sure there was healthy food to eat. Truck drivers helped by transporting supplies. Garbage collectors helped by keeping communities clean. When they went to the market, shoppers helped by wearing masks and staying six feet apart. And kids helped too, just by staying at home. It may seem like staying at home was doing nothing, 
But this was an important job. COVID-19 is spread by tiny droplets in the air. When more people get together, more droplets fill the air. When fewer people get together, fewer droplets fill the air. With fewer droplets in the air, fewer people may get sick. Soon, researchers will find a cure. Until they do, everyone is helping. Everyone, including kids like you. Oh, that is marvelous. Hey, I don't think you need to be between six and nine years old to get the best takeaway from that. Pam, I was hoping you would talk about the fact that there was a prize, a substantial prize, that the Emory Global Health Institute was able to offer for this. How was that funding provided? Yes, there was a substantial prize, and we were happy to award this and carry with $10,000 cash prize for, for this wonderful, wonderful book. Again, you know, when we talk about the, the mission of the Institute is to advance knowledge of global health issues, this is part of our mission. And so it's, our work is funded by Emory University. So we were, again, just delighted to be able to pivot during this time in history, you know, when we're all facing the COVID-19 virus and, and how to adapt and, and what does it mean to everybody. And we were thrilled to be able to provide a book through Beth and Carrie to help children, not only around the U.S., but, you know, we plan on sharing this broadly with as many children as we possibly can. I understand there were some honorable mention prizes as well. There were, you know, with 256 books, there were just incredible, incredible options to pick from. And while Beth and Carrie's was the clear winner, there were many other good books. So we decided to award four honorable mentions, and each of those authors received a $1,000 award. We had Bray Bray Conquers the Coronavirus by actually Maxie Mormon and Johanna Whiteley. And this is a beautiful book about a little boy named Brave who um, talks about what he can do to fight the virus. And the interesting story about Brave is he is actually the nephew of the author, and he lives here in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a real little guy, just an adorable book. There was Together Living Life During COVID-19 by Kevin Poplowski and Michael Rausch. And Michael is a local author. He lives here in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a physical therapist, and his wife is a physician. We're Going to Be Okay by Leanne Webb, Ebony J. Hilton, and Ashley Corin Webb. It was written by doctors who are working on the front lines who are also advocates for communities of color struggling with COVID-19 in their community. It's a lovely story about a little boy named Parker and his family and how they are staying well during the pandemic. And the final one is What Color Is Today by Allison Stephan. And this is a really unique and beautifully illustrated book that tackles mental health issues children are facing during the pandemic crisis. And the author uses color 
um, to describe the different moods the children may be experiencing during the crisis, such as blue is scary, red is angry, pink is puzzled, gray is gloomy, and so on. So just a lot of delightful books were submitted for the competition. Carrie and Beth, have you received feedback on the book? Yes. Yeah, we've received some positive feedback. What kind of comments have you received? Just thanking us for giving a platform that parents can go to. I, some of my colleagues at work who are parents and are dealing with all of the homeschooling and all of the, the questions and just having a place that they can go to to get some answers in a format that a child can understand and be empowered with. And I work in um, a school district, so a lot of the teachers and librarians in my school district have been asking, how can I get this for my students? It's an ebook, so they can present it to their kids freely online during their online school. Also, we are working on getting a print version that would be able to be ordered by libraries, and that'll just take a little while. And Pam, as the sponsor, what kind of feedback have you received? The feedback has been overwhelming. I've gotten so many emails and text messages and social media posts um, just thanking EGHI for, for making this possible and providing this book as a tool for, for parents to use when they're trying to educate and talk to their children about the issues. Pam Redman is CEO of the Emory Global Health Institute. She was joined by Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee, winners of the children's ebook competition. Their children's book is called COVID 19 Helpers. You can find more information about their book and the honorable mentions on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, growing your own food right here in the city. This is WABE Atlanta. As many of us remain sheltering in place, more people are growing their own food, that reminded me of last spring when I spoke with Carol Hunter of the Truly Living Well Center for Natural Urban Agriculture. She spoke about the importance of gardening and urban farms. And Jay Olubayawu of the Food Well Alliance talked about the significance of what we eat as well as how it's grown. Well, one of the things that we do um, at Truly Living Well and with so many other urban farmers is that we're growing natural and organically. And because of that, we make sure that there are no chemicals, no pesticides, no herbicides in our soil. The way we're able to make sure that happens is creating our own soil, taking natural products in our environment, taking that waste, and turn it into something truly wonderful. Um, truly Living Well was founded on that principle of the soil first and, and building up the soil. And from that, we've been able to grow thousands and thousands of pounds of food for our community. And that was one of the reasons we teamed up with Foodwell Alliance in the very beginning. We were actually demonstrating how this wonderful composting was creating this healthy food, and we were then getting that to our community. It's so fantastic 
to hear this. And yet it also seems like such a no-brainer. I mean, when I look at a, a food label, for example, on something frozen or prepared or a can, and see things with Latin names and numbers, <laughs> you know, how does one even begin to create food from such synthetics? And here you are taking something perfectly natural, and that's what's best. Well, when we think about, go back into our history, we used to eat directly from the land. So many of us in these urban environments, we moved away from that farmland, away from that life. And what we are promoting is that we can recapture that. We tell people, if you're even, if you're just growing in a pot on your patio, or you've got some space in your yard, begin to reconnect with the soil, begin to grow something. Um, so many of our children don't know where their food comes from. Right. So even as a small demonstration of saying, this is the source of that food, it's a great teaching tool. It's also a healing tool when you get your hands into the, <laughs> the dirt. Um, so we just encourage people to reconnect with the land. Tell us about Truly Living Well's College Town Farm. Our College Town Farm is located at 324 Lawton Street on Atlanta's west side in the Ashview Heights community. Um, it's just about seven minutes off of the I-20 corridor, um, so it's very easy to get to. But we've got about five acres there that we are actually doing urban farming. We demonstrate food growing in raised beds, in ground. We've got a hillside, a grow house, a greenhouse, um, and a composting operation. Both of your organizations, Truly Living Well and Food Well Alliance, focus on urban agriculture. How do the goals differ for urban communities? So at Food Well Alliance, we are a local collaborative of leaders who are working to build thriving community gardens and farms. Um, our belief is that food is a tool to build community and that thriving communities and gardens strengthen the hearts of cities and, and, and other places and spaces. Um, urban agriculture is not something that has kind of a one-size-fits-all um, answer. Um, it is everything from growing in your backyard, growing from your balcony, um, shopping with local farmers at a variety of our farmers markets that take place throughout metro Atlanta and throughout the country as a whole. Gardening and farming are primarily for those who have some land and the means to invest time and money in an uncertain outcome. Buying local organic produce is often much more expensive than buying produce at Walmart or at the supermarket. How are you working to bridge the gap of the high cost of farming and the high cost of buying locally farmed produce? Well, I'd love to approach that two ways. One of the things when we look at the cost of health care in our country, ah, yes. astronomical. So when you look at food as your medicine, eating fresh, healthy food. I, I call food an intimate commodity because whatever you put in your mouth affects your total well-being. And so when we are putting the right things into our bodies, you will actually begin to decrease some of those other areas that, I mean, most of the 
diseases that are affecting us now are diet-related. So let's start with the diet. If we begin to eat a more healthy or consume more healthy food, then when you factor that into your costs, it begins to look a little bit differently. The other thing I like to tell people is that when we eat locally, you're also supporting our local economy. So when you buy food locally, you're also supporting local farmers in your community. Carol Hunter is the executive director of the Truly Living Well Center for Natural Urban Agriculture. Jay Olubayawu is director of programs and outreach at the Food Well Alliance. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In the early 20th century, San Francisco's Fillmore District was a vibrant community of middle-class African Americans. Since urban redevelopment in the 1950s and 60s, the African American population of San Francisco has fallen by nearly half. Where does one go when your home is San Francisco? That question is at the heart of the Sundance Award-winning film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. If you didn't have a chance to see the movie in theaters, you can stream it now. Director Joe Talbot and actor Jimmy Fales joined me after the release of the film. Joe began telling us how they first met as kids. Well, there was a park that sort of lived right between our two houses, or where Jimmy lived, where I lived, uh, called Presida Park in San Francisco. Um, sort of hugged the line of the Mission District in Bernal Heights. And it was a park where a lot of different kids would hang out, play sports, um, and in my case, more run around with a camera. Um, <laughs> and so we would see each other around and, uh, you know, s- sort of silently acknowledge each other. And then eventually um, we, Jimmy came over to my house. He was friends with my younger brother, Nat. And um, we had a conversation that went long into the night and kind of touched on, it felt like everything. And um, yeah, just a bunch of stuff. It, it went on for hours. And I think that was the, the basis of the friendship we have now is the beginning and just kind of the basis for our friendship, which, you know, this is a lot of talking and being open with each other. How long ago was that when you It's met? all, man, it's just very blurry for us, I mean. Um, but <laughs> I would say ago, over yeah. 10 years for sure. Uh, some so of the, uh, you, were, you were teenagers, yeah. young teenagers. I was even younger than that. I feel like I was probably, it might have been like, 12, 13 years now that I think about it, I mean, but. Well, how long have you been talking with each other about making this film? Clearly, you had a lot to talk about at the very mm-hmm. beginning. I mean, we always have a lot to talk about. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's, again, blurry, but I would say unofficially, like, five years, you know. Um, you know, it was an idea that came from, again, talking having a conversation came very informally and um, just sort of, you know, started to get developed once we, you know, kind of met other people that just showed us a lot of support and, you know, we had other conversations with other people and told them about 
this sort of idea that kind of came and it's it's very blurry how it started to get developed but well basically no i mean we we shot a concept trailer that was the first thing we did you know um having never done this before on this level we had made movies together when we were younger and that concept trailer became a calling card we put it online it was jimmy skating through san francisco telling the story of his grandfather that had inspired you know this film we wanted to make and we started getting emails from people all over the the world actually saying you know these same things are happening in our cities we're seeing our cities change and become unrecognizable that was the first time I think that I realized oh this is bigger than San Francisco and so we also got emails from people closer to home in the Bay Area saying you know how can we help make this movie and so given that we had never done anything on a large scale it had just been our ragtag productions with friends and family and whoever we could sort of, you know, uh, give a pair of headphones to and a microphone. <laughs> it was like we all learned to make a movie together with these these people who reached out and became our film family. And so we spent, yeah, the last five years um, basically writing the script, developing the materials, locations, scouting, casting. Um, and it got bigger and bigger, um, but for a long time it was... A small group of people we called our long shot family that was the name of our collective because it felt like it was going to be a long shot to get this movie made well nothing about the film seems ragtag including the beauty of its production just gorgeous lighting and dreamlike sequences and and the acting is superb jimmy this story is based on your family's Victorian home. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about the significance of the house itself to the story? Mm. Well, the house is everything to the story. The house is what what draws me to the city in the first place. You know, the house is, was for a very long time the only thing, you know, driving me to stay there for, you know, for reasons being the only place where I've, had my full family sort of together you know and since we lost that house I haven't had that family feeling it's also my grandpa's legacy he owned several properties in the Fillmore so it represents you know black ownership represents my grandpa who was my idol you know I thought he was Superman (laughs) growing up so um it just you know it it represents that that's what it represents for me most importantly just a family well, he was kind of a superman. He was a World War II veteran, proud, moved to San Francisco from no. New Orleans. No, 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 no. He 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 actually didn't fight in the war. He came from Alabama, but he he was a he was a minister actually at Second King Baptist Church. He came after World War II. Okay. That's that might have been the the mix up, but okay. yeah. But many people did come from the South. That was sort of you know the migration the, um, to San Francisco yeah. for a lot of African Americans who worked in the shipyards during the war. Um, and that's when, as we were discussing last night, um, the Fillmore um, area of San Francisco became known as Harlem of the West. Yeah, I was hoping you would talk more about that now because um, this was such a, a vibrant and interesting community um, Harlem of the West, why don't more Americans know about it? Well, why well, don't more San Franciscans yeah, know that, about it? It's also a question, say, yeah, you know, yeah. we had, is like, you, you grew up, you know, I think we're all deeply aware of 
when you grew up in San Francisco, the music that came out of the 60s, Jefferson Airplane and Janis Joplin, uh, the films that came out of San Francisco from noir films to, you know, um, Coppola's movies in, in the 60s and 70s and so on. But you're not taught necessarily about the Harlem of the West um, about the jazz scene that took place in San Francisco um, and about many of the important figures in that, like Charles Sullivan. Um, and so for us, I think, too, this was sort of an exploration into a part of San Francisco's past that, that isn't always discussed. And it's part of why we felt like it was important to make this movie is because, you know, there are waves of people coming to San Francisco right now who don't know very much about the battles that were fought to create San Francisco values, to create a place that was not only a hub for artists, but for people who felt like they couldn't fit where they came from. They arrived at the gates of San Francisco to be fully themselves, you know, all these waves of people. Um, and I think to understand that history uh, is to understand why we believe it's so important to fight for San Francisco. It's not just nostalgia. It's not just wanting to hold on to an idea of, of what it was like when we grew up there. But it's that these values were, were fought. You know, even people like Danny Glover, who's in our film, Danny Glover was an activist before he was a world-famous actor. He grew up in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury. He lived all over Hunter's Point. He lived in basically every location that's in our film. He was working in city government for six years. He was involved in the famous strikes at SF State in the late 60s. He was, you know, in the streets of San Francisco fighting to make San Francisco the place that we grew up in. So, you know, he and many others are, I think, people when you grow up there you look up to and so when people come and they don't know that and they say, well, cities are always changing. This is just part of the change, natural change. It doesn't feel very natural to us. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Danny Glover, who portrays the grandfather of Jimmy's best friend in the film, Mont. And we've already established this as your first feature-length film so how did you land Danny Glover to play such <laughs> mm -hmm. an important role, an artist of his stature in right. a first-time film? Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's always our dream to get him, but uh, the the producers and everybody have been trying to get into contact with him. He was, like, impossible to reach for a while, and, um, you know, next thing you know, I'm walking home from the gym and I get a call. <laughs> I get a call, I pick up the phone, he's like, hey, it's Danny. It's like, everybody knows Danny Glover's voice. It's like, how could you not know that? So I'm like, he's like, it's Danny, Danny Glover. I'm like, yeah, I know. of course I know it's Danny Glover. Like, what's up, man? He's just like eating food. Like, you could just hear him chewing and, you know, licking his fingers and whatever. And then he's, um, we just start talking. We don't even talk about the movie at all. We just were literally just talking about just the, the history of the film work. She grew up there and he was just, you know, telling me about stories of him in the film and seeing the Temptations live and whatever. And I was just talking about myself growing up, you know, you know, to him, I'm a baby, he always calls me that. But so, you know, I was telling him my experience as well, you know, which is nothing compared to, you know, his. But um, so, yeah, we just sort of had that conversation. And um, I think, you know, us, us talking about that, he 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 got to gauge that how much I love San Francisco, which is what I feel like why he came onto this project is because he saw two people that love the city, you know, 
like he did, you know. I don't even want to say like he did. He probably, you know, he's done so much more for the city than well, than I could ever. But, but you know, clearly, yeah. he was not in it for mm-hmm. the money. Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly. You have to be crazy to join this movie for the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You cast childhood friends and mm. other locals for the street corner crew mm-hmm. that appears in the film, and with one young man in that group. We see his pain in uh, keeping up the tough facade. Mm-hmm. He's really very tender-hearted. How would you describe the character of Kofi? Well, when we were growing up in San Francisco, like Jimmy said earlier, I think one of the things that was felt unique about our friendship was that we could be vulnerable with each other and we could open up to each other, talk about things that we didn't feel you know, maybe comfortable talking about with other friends. And in doing that, when some friends would come around us uh, and be just, you know, us three or four hanging out, they would also get in touch with that vulnerability, I think, and feel more encouraged to, to be that way. But then they'd get back in a different group and all of a sudden they'd be putting on, like you said, that facade again. And, you know, um, I think for us watching people struggle with that is a hard thing when you're growing up and and there are certain scenes in the film that come directly from incidents that happened to friends of ours and we wanted to try to channel that and show that because one of the themes of the movie and it's interesting it's it's something that I don't think we actually explicitly discussed in making it but it is something that people have come up to us time and time again and, and wanted to talk about is you know men being vulnerable and sensitive, and, and the word that Jonathan Majors, who plays Jimmy's best friend, Mont, in the film, uses is gentle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we don't always see men get to do that. And, you know, when you grow up with images of, of men being one thing, being tough, hard, um, always confident, you know, hyper-masculine, it's hard if you feel that there are parts of you that don't fully relate to that. And so I think we wanted to create characters that felt like the people who we grew up with who could in one sense be be tough, but in another sense be um, soft and gentle. And, and I think that's a part of, of this film. We'll return to my conversation with director Joe Talbot and actor Jimmy Fails about their film The Last Black Man in San Francisco. After a short break, this is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. 
Let's return to my conversation with director Joe Talbot and actor Jimmy Fails about their movie, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Jimmy, I read that you and Jonathan Majors, the actor who plays Mont, your mm-hmm. best friend in the movie, became great friends during mm-hmm. the filming. And that comes through immediately on screen. This was your first film, mm-hmm. your first professional film. And Jonathan graduated from the Yale School of Drama. Did you feel intimidated in any way by his background? Um, Yes, absolutely I did. But he made sure that he that that I, I didn't feel that he always stressed that 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 we were equals and that he was here to help me feel feel comfortable and and be able to tell this story and that that's all that he was about that's so reassuring to know Mm -hmm. that um he treated you as an equal Mm -hmm. and it sounds like you'll remain friends absolutely yeah he was very loving Mm -hmm. you know with with jimmy and it, it it was uh wonderful as a director to get to watch that friendship start to really like um start to watch them get so close. Well, we've we've been talking about friendship and how your friendship forms, um, informs so much of the story that's on screen. Jimmy, it is your grandpa's story, your family saga, this intergenerational story about home and belonging and community. It seems like there are many opportunities for life and art to blur or Mm -hmm. to have blurred for you. Were there times in the making of the film when you thought, wait, this this is fiction, this is art, or, or did it feel like a documentary? No, I don't think it ever felt like a documentary because we're storytellers and we have imaginations. We try to keep our imagination as young as possible without being naive to a lot of things. But um, I think it just it everything was emotionally true. And that's one of the things that Jonathan taught me anyway. It's like it has to be true, period, for any role. It's also personal for me, so it wasn't very hard for it to do that. So. Um, I think it was hard to even blur the lines through what was fictional and what was not a lot of the time, but But because it all felt true. Your character has Mm -hmm. your name. Yes. Was that surreal? No. (laughs) It's funny. I'm like watching it at times for me, like felt, I don't know if surreal is the word, but it was interesting to feel like there were certain incidents that did happen, some of which Jimmy was present for in his life, it being inspired by that, and some of which, you know, were things that I saw or that I was present for. There is a weird feeling. I'd step back sometimes just looking at Jimmy and looking at certain scenes, and it's like watching this heightened version of what was reality at one point with the camera now and costume and 50 people running around tending to all the little details, makeup and everything. Um, but even in those moments where it was like watching, uh, you know, this heightened, 
it's I I want to say reenactment, but it isn't a reenactment because again, like Jimmy said, it's it then grew in our imaginations, um, taking from the kind of kernel of what inspired it, and then would change, you know. Um, but but it there were times where it felt strange to watch unfold, you know. Yeah, foundational, I guess. The film has been compared to Armistead Mopin's mm. Tales of the City, which is his own love letter and quirky account, first in newspaper columns mm -hmm. and then as books and a movie. Where do you think those comparisons come from? I think there's a sort of there's a love of San Francisco and all of its wonderful eccentricities and um, and the great characters that make up San Francisco. Um, you know, I think um, someone yesterday wrote about how the movie lived uh, close to in this writer's heart, Harold and Maude and Petulia. Oh, I appreciate that as someone that loves both of those films <laughs> in different ways. You know, obviously there's a romantic love between Harold and Maude in that film, but there's also a great friendship that forms from two sort of uh, wonderfully unique, different individuals. And I think that's part of how we, you know, thought about this film with Jimmy and Mott, both feeling quintessentially San Francisco and yet very different. And Harold and Mott actually is also shot in the Bay Area, um, which I think people don't always realize because it's sort of a foggy, gothic, almost uh, English-like depiction of the Bay. But watching that movie was really inspiring because I think we wanted to also make this love letter to our city that showed a different side of the city than, than most people might be familiar with watching some of the more classic San Francisco films. And you achieved that so beautifully. Um, because there is tremendous character to the Fillmore as it's presented and the Fillmore in Jimmy's memory, I mean, that lives in Jimmy's memory, in his father's memory. Yet one thing I admired is you don't see the Transamerica building. <laughs> you don't see that, you know, brilliant blue sky like in the postcards mm. with uh, the skyline and the city on the bay, the most that one sees is the Golden Gate Bridge. And I think that in itself was so powerful. Yeah, well, we wanted, yeah, we wanted to show the side of the city that no one sees because that's the side of the city that we saw when we were growing up. I was hoping you might talk about the music. All of the music used in the film is is gorgeous. It's it's effective. Um, the original music we have a little bit of the soundtrack. Can we hear?
that's called King Jimmy, the yes. music associated with the home and Jimmy's character. Uh, is yeah, Emil wrote that piece, yeah. So Emil Mosseri wrote Mosseri, it. Emil Mosseri, yeah. And then your name comes into this list, Joe, and Daniel Herskadal, mm -hmm. and featuring Mike Marshall. Let's hear a little bit of this. Hey, hey, yeah. song is sort of uh, it's emblematic of the, the collaboration that went into this film oh. um, you know it's a song that I'll get into sort of the history of that song in San Francisco in a moment but just in terms of how it came to be Mont uh, Jonathan Majors who plays him is always playing music on set uh, Van Morrison, others, you know, music he thought his character would be listening to. Otis? He, uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, and so he um, was playing one day this, this musician, Daniel Herskadal, who's a tubist, Norwegian tubist, and it sounded to me like foghorns. And so I said, oh, my God, what is that? And he told me it was. And when I wrote Daniel Herskadal. I said, can you do this version of the old Scott McKenzie song, Yeah, Flowers in Your Hair, um, for the film? And so he, he wrote that. He came up with that sort of uh, his own version of it to sound like the foghorns in Hunter's Point because Hunter's Point, where much of the film takes place, is on the water, and you hear the foghorns and the seagulls. And, um, and then, um, you know, there's a singer who has a golden voice, he's famous in the Bay Area, named Mike Marshall, he sang I Got Five on it, um, which, of course, everyone around my age knows and grew up listening to. Um, and so we brought in Mike Marshall to, to sing uh, on the song, and Emil, our composer, then wrote the organ that you hear. There's... Um, these sort of siren-like backing vocals that come in just after the clip we heard. And so it felt like all these different people had their hands in this song, and that's kind of what the process was like. But that song itself also has a weird history in San Francisco because um, it was actually written at first as a way to uh, calm the sort of local authorities' anxieties about all these waves of kids descending on San Francisco and the Bay Area for Monterey Pop. Uh, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas wrote the song. And so, you know, growing up, my parents who raised me in all that old music from the 60s always thought of that song as very corny because it was sort of like faux hippie pop. Yeah, handing out flowers. <laughs> right. It was sort of not not exactly like one of the more beloved ballads, but I think over time it's sort of uh, 
taken on a, a different place in our hearts because it does it still come from that period that people have romantic memories of. Mm-hmm. And yet we wanted to put it now in the mouth of an artist who can't afford to live in San Francisco. Uh, you know, in those days, Jeff Airplane, Grateful Dead were living in these Victorian mansions in the hate. And now many of the musicians that live there, it feels like they're sleeping in front of those mansions. Director Joe Talbot and actor Jimmy Fails. Their movie, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, can be streamed on Amazon Prime, Google Play, and other platforms. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with the Indigo Girls to preview their new album debuting tomorrow. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. And subscribe to our new podcast on just about any app. Stay safe, wishing you well, and thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.